Hello and welcome to the podcast for the December 2007 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and I'm here with Sally Hargreaves from TLID to discuss the highlights from the December issue. Sally, welcome. I think our main focus this month should be to do with private sector investment in global health because this is the topic of your leading edge and also a related news piece. Sally, what are private sector businesses doing or probably what are they not doing in terms of investing in global health? And I've noticed you focus on HIV AIDS in particular. Well, yes, December the 1st is actually World AIDS Day and the campaign focus this year is to mobilise all sectors of society to providing leadership, innovation and vision in the fight against HIV AIDS. In the leading edge this month, I've looked at the contribution that the private sector, in particular businesses and corporations operating in some of the hardest hit countries, have made in tackling HIV HIV AIDS globally during the past 25 years. Through my research I found that the business community in these countries has been very slow to act, despite the fact that in many of the hardest hit countries these businesses will see high rates of HIV and other infectious diseases, such as tuberculosis and malaria for example, among their workforce. Anglo-American, one of the world's biggest mining companies, has estimated that up to 21% of its workforce in eastern and southern Africa, around 23,500 employees, are HIV positive. So although there are some companies that have explored the impact of HIV AIDS on their own workforce and are now offering free testing, running educational programmes and in limited cases offering free antiretrovirals to their workforce, on the whole I think we can say the private sector response has so far been inadequate and really represents an enormous missed opportunity in the fight against HIV AIDS. What I would say is that this does appear now to be changing, however, with a new momentum among business leaders that just didn't exist two to three years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. What do you think the actual motivation is for businesses to, if you like, invest in this area? But following what you just said about the mining company, it's about looking after your workforce. Yes, I think there are numerous reasons really why the business community is becoming more involved in HIV AIDS and broader issues around global health and poverty reduction. Primarily there are clear economic and commercial arguments for action and there's a general consensus now that a commitment to addressing high prevalent diseases such as AIDS, malaria and TB can actually be a core component of a successful business strategy. We know that AIDS hits people of a working age hardest and as individuals fall sick, absenteeism increases and productivity declines. In a Newsdesk article in this month's issue, Benji Wilson has highlighted the work of the De Beers Group in Botswana and their reasoning behind setting up an HIV treatment centre for employees working down their diamond mines. It makes clear financial sense for the De Beers Group to treat its HIV-positive employees with cheap antiretroviral drugs because the organisation has trained and invested in these staff and doesn't want to lose them. But in addition, we've recently seen an unprecedented level of civil society mobilisation around issues such as global poverty and health and this is something that businesses who are increasingly concerned about brand awareness simply cannot afford to ignore. What needs to happen now Sally? Is this a case of promoting best practice or could something like statutory regulation within countries have a positive effect? I think there are numerous challenges to ensuring a sustained effort from the private sector. We need to start by better engaging business leaders on issues around global health, yet there is certainly a sense now that there is a clear willingness to do more on these issues. In addition, I think there's a lot more governments can do. For example, we know that there is an increasing trend by companies towards pre-employment screening for HIV. In one study, 50% of businesses surveyed in Tanzania reported funding pre-employment screening programmes with a view to identifying and excluding HIV-positive individuals from employment. What governments need to do is work towards strengthening labour laws to tackle such discrimination in the workplace. So do look out for the leading edge and a linked news desk report about this issue. Very interesting read it is too. 
Moving on, Sally, you've got a review about a neglected disease, I think, human brucellosis. Can you give us some background information about the character and basic epidemiology of this disease? Yes, yeah, so human brucellosis remains one of the world's most common bacterial zoonoses with over half a million new cases annually and high prevalence rates in some countries. Despite being endemic in many resource-poor countries, according to the authors of this review, however, brucellosis remains underdiagnosed and underreported. Human brucellosis has a wide spectrum of clinical manifestations, earning it a place alongside syphilis and tuberculosis as one of the great imitators. Clinical features will depend on the stage of the disease and the organs and systems involved. However, clinical studies have shown that fever is the most common feature, followed by osteoarticular involvement, sweating and constitutional symptoms. Although, however, brucellosis is rarely fatal, it has a tendency towards chronicity and persistence. And the review is pointing to the fact that diagnosis and treatment is challenging because little is known about this and there's some confusion about how you actually go about diagnosing it. Though it does, the review point to some newer techniques that should help in this way. Indeed, Richard, accurate diagnosis of human brucellosis presents numerous challenges to clinicians because of its non-specific clinical features. And as well, the clinical management of this disease is difficult because of high initial treatment phase and relapse rates among patients. There have, however, been numerous recent advances in terms of genomics and proteomics that are enabling scientists to better understand the disease mechanisms. And in addition, developments in culture and serological diagnostic methods have led to improved lab diagnosis to confirm disease. Some of the newer diagnostics certainly are simple and affordable and may prove invaluable in resource-poor countries in the future. Clinician recognition and reporting of human brucellosis is a key component, I think, in improving both the allocation of resources and the development of improved and sustained control efforts. Thanks, Sally. Also, you've got a review, and this is looking at meningococcal disease in sub-Saharan Africa, very much an epidemiological review with implications, I guess, for vaccination programmes, talking about the sub-Saharan or African belt. Can you first of all define this belt of countries that they're referring to here? Yes, this is an area of Africa that stretches from Senegal to Ethiopia and is a region characterised by high levels of endemic meningococcal disease and most strikingly by the occurrence of large epidemics in the dry season every two to ten years. So why is it so important to understand the epidemiology in this region? Asymptomatic meningococcal carriage is common in most populations, but invasive disease is rare. These epidemics in the African belt continue to wreak havoc, but new efforts to control the disease through the use of conjugate vaccines has required researchers to better understand the epidemiology in this region in view of plans for large-scale immunisation programmes. In this review, Caroline Trotter and Brian Greenwood from the University of Bristol and the London School review Neisseria meningitidis carriage studies that have been done in and around the African meningitis belt to assess the likely benefits of immunisation programmes with conjugate vaccines. And what are their main conclusions? The authors of this review conclude that the dynamics of carriage within a population are complex and if conjugate vaccines are to be equally effective in Africa as they are in other European countries in which they are currently used, it's essential that they reduce pharyngeal carriage and interrupt transmission. However, the authors highlight that the ability of these conjugate vaccines to reduce carriage is yet to be shown in the research and carefully designed longitudinal carriage studies are needed to explore the benefits of vaccinating individuals living in the African belt. And finally, Sally, briefly, if you would, an interesting feature. This 